This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. On today's episode, we have Jock Lukinson. You're going to hear his story, and he's got some great tips about travel, and he's going to tell you what the ultimate adventure bike is for you. Yes, the defining episode. Stay with us. we got a good one. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tuck. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. How do you determine which bike is right for you? I mean, the ultimate bike for you. We've interviewed many riders on this show, and when it comes to determining the all-time best adventure bike for you, through all these interviews is a common thread, and it's not difficult to spot. For instance, Sam Manicom rides an old BMW R80. Lisa and Simon Thomas, also BMWs. King of Tanawaska rides a BMW. Steph Jevons, however, rides a Honda CRF 250L. Brett Tax rides a Triumph. Ted Simon, a Triumph. Graham Field rides a Kawasaki KLR 650. Lisa Sarnoza rides a Ducati. Mallory Page, a KLR with a sidecar. Spencer Conway, a Yamaha XT660. Lois Price, also a Yamaha, but a Cerro 225. Eric Gregg in a BMW with a sidecar. And Carla King rode a Ural for a while. Ed March rides a Honda C9 step through and Nathan Millward rides one very similar. Let's not forget Dave Barr that rides a Harley Davidson and the list goes on. So now you're thinking, okay, so much for the common thread. Not only are many of these people riding different makes and models of bikes, but different engine sizes too. Why aren't they all riding the best bike? Jacques Lucasen began riding motorcycles when he's around 11 years old. He started out with a Vespa 125cc, but since then has become one of the most prolific motorcycle travelers in the world. Jacques' trips are notable, first off, because of the bike he chooses to ride on his adventures, the Yamaha R1. 
Now, in case you're not familiar with the R1 from Yamaha, the R1 is an open-class sport bike or superbike. Yeah, that's right. It's the type of bike that you would see on the racetrack with a rider lying on the tank as if they were riding a rocket. So where in that description does it say adventure bike? Where does Yamaha, for instance, say, load this bike up and ride it anywhere? Well, it doesn't. So why would Jacques Lucasen ride the R1 as an adventure bike around the world? Yeah, that's the question that everybody comes with first. Um, it's, a, it's a bike of my heart. And uh, I find that far more important than the right bike for the terrain. Because if your heart is in it, you will succeed in almost anything. And if some people don't care what bike you take, they should take an all-road bike. But if you have a certain type that you want to take, take it. Take that one. Because it's far more important that you're very happy on the road. And then, uh, then you get there. And, and I love that answer. But I have to ask, wouldn't it be easier if you rode a bike that was better suited to what you're doing? Because you're doing extreme adventure. Yeah. Actually, I already answered that in the, in the last uh, answer. Uh, yes, because uh, uh, like I said, if, if you want uh, the right bike for the terrain, take an old road bike. But that's not important for me. Um, if it's easier or less hard, um, that's not what I, why I'm doing it. I want to be happy. And uh, I'm not in a rush. It's not um, a Paris Dakar. Um, time is my friend. I want to travel at time as my time as my friend. Did you start out riding the R1? Was was that your your bike on your original trip that you did? I didn't start on the R1. Uh, I started on the Fireblade. Um, four inline engines. They have my heart, so it doesn't really matter what bike it would be at this time. I'm really I'm really R1, but um, I was also very happy uh, on traveling with the Fireblade. In 92, when I bought a Fireblade, I decided to buy the box with it too, and uh, I sent it to Australia. Traveled there for 38,000 kilometers and uh, sent it back. When there's a backpacker to Indonesia, Indonesia I love, but backpacking, that was not my thing. So I decided to do uh, a world trip, a once-in-a-lifetime world trip, that was the idea, and started off on that same Fireblade in 95 and traveled around the world or actually I called that trip to the other end of the world and back and I traveled uh, 160,000 kilometers in that in uh, three years so that would be 100,000 miles and from there on I, uh, I the next trip was with the R1 and that was in 2001 and, and that went yes. on to 2006 yes and from 2001 till 2006 i traveled uh, 250,000 kilometers with the r1 around the world why the switch from the fireblade to the r1 at that point um in a way i did wanted to switch bikes um i thought it would be better to stay with with one brand um but uh, honda wasn't really supporting me and the feeling that i had for the r1 was all but it was also much more. I Once I sat on it, it felt like coming home. It was such a nice bike to sit on. So eventually when uh, when uh, Yamaha approached me to, to take a Yamaha, I was actually very happy. Um, and I'm now also very happy that I made the, the shift or the switch. Uh, not that I wanted to go away from Honda, but only because that particular model 
uh, I like at that stage far more than the model at the, that the Fireblade had at that stage. But both bikes were good, really good. Now you ride the R1, like as you've said, around the world. You also ride it into extreme conditions in the north. What's great about the R1? I mean, I know you said it's the bike that you love, and I get that. But but what's great about it for riding aspects? Uh, the sound. Uh, you sit on it uh, really nice. If there's cornering, uh, you can have fun. Of course, you can have that on, on other bikes too. And in the far north, uh, cornerability is not, not, not important anymore. <laughs> the reason that I keep riding on, uh, on the R1 or going to use uh, an R1 also on my next trip as a donor bike is the, the quality of the bike. The bike uh, performed so well that it's now over 300,000 kilometers and it's still on its first engine. Mm. And so the quality is very important. And the other thing is that I know how to work on it. If you are on the polar ice and it's 40 degrees below zero, uh, you want a bike that you know. You want an engine that you know. So that's one of the, also one of the reasons that I take the R1. And uh, a bike, because on my next trip I want to go to the North Pole, a bike that is capable of going to the North Pole does not exist. Because also, even if I take an all-road bike, I would have to modify it so so big that it doesn't really matter what, what bike you modify. I love the way you talk about this for the R1 because we, we always talk on this show about, you know, there's no bike that's a perfect bike. All bikes are great, you know, it's, and, and we say just what you're saying there, you know, take the bike that you love. Clearly some will be better at some things than other things, but... Um, it's really interesting because I think you're that extreme. Like you're, we've interviewed many people, I think, that have been on, uh, you know, the the Honda step-throughs, for instance, which I, again, are many people would look at and say, "There's no way that that's an adventure bike." But but this sort of brings it all around. Talking to you about the R1 to show that it's not about the bike. You know, it's it's about the adventure itself and the fact that you're taking yours and you're you're not limited at all by it. I mean, to take it to the north, you're doing something, as you said, there's no bike that's, that's made for that. So I guess when you're adapting a motorcycle for it, really, you're at ground zero anyway. Yes, absolutely. I did a few uh, rides uh, in the snow and it became more and more extreme. So I knew more and more what I, what I actually would need. And uh, during the last trip, uh, I went on the polar ice north of Alaska. Spent four days traveling from Barrow till the first place where I could get on land. And from there, I rode the whole way down to Key West. But the part on the, on the ice, that was the most important part for me. I wanted to know how the bike would handle and uh, uh, also how I would handle the, the terrain up there. And uh, I found out uh, some of those things that I had done work and some didn't. So on my next bike, the things that didn't work will be changed. And uh, so, yeah, it's a lot of adapting. And uh, at the end, I, uh, I will get there, like always. So think about this. Jacques Lucasen may be the most extreme adventure rider in the world. 160,000 kilometers or 100,000 miles on his Honda Fireblade through 40 countries. Then, five years and five months, riding 250,000 kilometers or 155,000 miles on his Yamaha R1. Winter riding to the North Cape in two different years, Alaska and Canada, 
and he's been riding a sport bike, which doesn't resemble even in the slightest bit the typical adventure bike is pitched in the mainstream media. Jacques is an authority, and yet a pioneer in winter motorcycle riding, because it isn't something that many people do. I mean, it's not like there haven't been other people riding in the winter. We had Ed March and Rachel Lasham on here while they were riding across Canada on their C90s, and that was in the winter. And then we had Doris Wiedemann, who rode with Jacques through the winter in Alaska, and Doris loves riding in the cold on her motorcycle. But what's the fascination with riding in the winter? What is it about riding a motorcycle through the winter that appeals to you? It's not actually that I'm, I'm fancy or keen on riding a motorcycle in the winter. I want to go to the North Pole. And you can only go there in winter. And it better be a good winter. Otherwise, you partly have to swim, and that's not the plan, too. So um, winter is a must in this case. If you want to go to the North Pole, that's how you have to do it. So were all the previous trips a build-up to go to the North Pole? Uh, not all, but uh, I had the the trip uh, from the North Pole in mind before I did the R1 trip. It's somewhere during the the Fire Bay trip from '95 to '98, the one the one to the other end of the world and back. Somewhere during that time, it came up, uh, came in my mind, and never got out. Being a pioneer means you have to figure things out for yourself. There's little information on riding motorcycles in the winter, and even less on riding in the deep cold of the Arctic on our two-wheeled beasts. So it's a matter of trial and error. But that error can be rather severe. When you get into these conditions, something can go wrong and be a big thing very quickly. It could be sliding sideways along the road or mechanical failure as the cold seeps into the bike, or even worse. What sort of things have you had to do to prepare your bike to ride in the winter? Um, what do you have to prepare um, in the winter is, um, uh, of course, tires um, uh, for the very cold, the, the battery, uh, preheating of uh, cooling liquid uh, is a bonus, and preheating of the carburetors too, uh, good protection for yourself. These are a few of the main things when you ride in the winter, but that's not on the polar ice. With polar ice, you have totally different conditions, and there's no road. Uh, sometimes you have deep snow, um, or soft snow patches with uh, pressure ridges, so you have to be able to ride over them. And I found out that if the bike is too heavy and too high and you fall over, it's very hard to put it straight. Now. This is one of the problems that I have to tackle on my uh, on my uh, the bike that I'm going to build to the to go to the North Pole, and one of the ways I'm doing that is with uh, very wide tires, much wider tires, so I won't sink in the snow. And these tires also prevent me a little from uh, falling over. And uh, like I said before, uh, if a bike is high, it's very hard to put it straight. So I will have suspension that I can lower down. So if I, if I drop it, I can lower it down to pick it up. That, that are some of uh, them. But on my website, I described already the whole bike, how I'm going to build it. So this is a bike you're going to build special for that trip? Yes, this is going to be a bike they're going to uh, build special for the trip. And, uh, but it's going to be based on, uh, on an R1. It will have the frame and the engine from the R1. Uh, the tank, and 
the rest, I don't know. Uh, definitely not the front, definitely not the, the swing arm and all of that. Um, later, I want to put parts on it from an R1 to, to give it that look because that is the bike where, where the frame, which frame and engine I use. But um, only when they fit, I will use the parts that will be best for the trip. That is the most important thing. And what route do you take for this? Not hundred percent sure what route. I'm not hundred percent sure what route I'm gonna take. Uh, my plan is to start in Alaska and travel to uh, Inuvik, go on the ice road to Tuktiaktuk, and from there I want to uh, go a little bit parallel on the on the islands or uh, to the most northern civilization. I know that there's a base, a lot of polar walkers uh, started from there in the, uh, years ago. And that is what I want to do in the first year. In the next year, I want to start there again at the same spot where I ended the year before and then go virtually straight to the North Pole. But that depends on where open water is and uh, where the best terrain is. The reason that I want to take two years for the trip is... Uh, uh, to have less time pressure and there's actually only two months that you are a, a little bit safe uh, on the ice a little bit safe so you've got a, a 60 day window that you're hoping to get and as you said it depends on the winter you could get a winter that doesn't give you enough ice well yeah well if if, uh, if the winter is not good we might have to wait till the next winter don't know don't know yet Jacques' first attempt at cold weather riding was back in 2006. He'd just returned from his R1 world travel trip that was five years and five months in the making when he met up with another rider, Marcus Kingma. Marcus asked Jacques if he'd like to accompany him to the North Cape to ring in the new year. Yes, in the dead of winter. Which bike did he ride? Come on now. The R1, of course. But Marcus, he rode a Yamaha XT660, a very different bike to Jacques R1. Now, the team made a valid attempt, but failed in 2006. Complications they couldn't have seen, and I guess learning to ride in the winter weather. But Jacques returned again in 2008 and successfully completed the trip to the North Cape in the middle of winter to ring in the new year with a few others. Then, in 2009, Jacques teams up with Doris Wiedemann, and they ride their bikes, Doris on a BMW F800 GS and Jacques on, yes, his R1. To the United States, they rode from the southernmost point in the United States, Key West, Florida, to the most northerly point accessible by road, Dead Horse, Alaska. On Jacques' blog post for the adventure, there's a picture of him standing on the ice looking towards the North Pole. The caption reads, The Next Adventure. Obviously, the first person to ride a motorcycle, or at least attempt to ride a motorcycle, to the North Pole. I heard that the Japanese has uh, done it somewhere in the seventies. I'm not sure if that is uh, the case, um, but that's not the reason why I'm doing it. I don't have to be the first one. If um, if it happens to be, that would be great. I will definitely also go for the Guinness Book of Records if they recognize this. But uh, that's not what I'm doing it. I do it because I want to go there. What do you expect to find when you get there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, How do I describe that? Um, The end of another adventure? Well, well, the, hang on. That's not really the end, though. You still got to get back from that, right? I mean, no, like, no, no. Not going to go back. 
Oh, you're not. No, no, I'm not going to stay there either. But uh, no, I'm going to fly out or uh, I don't, I'm not sure yet how. Uh, I know that the Russians have a base there and they have big planes. So it should be easy to find uh, to fly it out. On my way up there, I will have definitely support of a little plane for fuel droppings and, and other things. But uh, the plan is not to ride out. When you're doing this, do you arrange everything in advance? Do you arrange the, the ride out and everything? All this is planned in advance? Or do you sort of figure there's planes there, I'm going to get there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work it out when I get there? In my other travels, I am uh, I'll work it out when I get there. But this is uh, it's going to be so big and so... Um, so, so hard to organize that I will have to arrange things in advance. It's not like you want to sit around at the North Pole for a couple of weeks while you sort things out. No, no, not that you then think about, oh, well, I got here now. How do I get out here? <laughs> no, no. What do you do for gear? How are you getting your, your gear? You're camping a long way, obviously. There's no hotels. No, and there's no hotels, no fuel stations, and no McDonald's. No McDonald's. So, oh, jeez. <laughs> Well, they have nice uh, fries. Yeah. That's the only thing. Sure. <laughs> well, get the McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I camp. I have a camp. Um, I have been now in the cold uh, twice. Twice in the real cold because the, towards the North Cape wasn't really cold. I've been uh, in, in, in 2009 and in 2013 faced cold in Alaska and in Canada. And um, I had some clothing, uh, look well clothing from, uh, uh, and uh, normal buy clothing from Lookwell and a special overall from Lookwell. And I had uh, some heated clothing from Clam. And uh, the combination of these clothing worked pretty well. Takes a little bit too long to, to, to put everything on in the morning. But it worked really well. I, I didn't really get cold. So for closing, uh, I don't have to change that much. I have to change it a little bit that I can put it on a little bit quicker. But, uh, yeah, that, that was pretty much okay. The good thing about heated clothing is that you can uh, uh, cover temperature fluctuations. If uh, you have to work really hard and it's only minus 20, I'm talking in centigrade. And it's only minus 20 and you have to work really hard on the bike. You don't need as warm clothing as when it's minus 40 and you're riding uh, on easy terrain. Um, so you, what, you, what you don't do is put an extra jumper on. In the morning you get dressed and that's what you have on during the day. That's what, uh, that's what you're going to uh, ride with. So by using the heated clothing, you don't have problems with those temperature differences. Then you can adjust it as well, right? You can change the, the yeah. setting on it. The colder it gets, the more you yeah. turn it up. But, but it's running off your battery, so you, you're limited. Like when you're saying when you're working on the bike, isn't it, you're going to drain your battery quick. Well, um, the heated clothing can run on 100% uh, during idling of the bike. Uh, if that's not the case, you shouldn't go. Mm. And that's to do with the, the bike charging system. Um, obviously, yes. it's, it's got to put out enough, you're saying, to, to keep it on 100% at an idle. Well, let's say idle, let's say 3,000 revs, but uh, mm. two and a half, three thousand. but that, that's virtually idle. And um, in my case, this is an overbike. This is not the, the, 
because the newer bikes need that high uh, power for the for the ignition and for the for their systems. My bike doesn't need that. What year is yours? It's two. It's going to be a two thousand one model that I'm going to use. Why not a brand my, new one? My well travel bike is a two thousand and one. The one that I used on the Polar Ice is a two thousand, which is virtually the same engine, virtually the same bike, and that's the same bike that I'm going to use now on the, on the North Pole bike. Yeah, an obvious question. Why? I mean, I mean, probably an obvious question to you, but why an older bike? Why not a brand new bike? Because so a brand new bike has not proven itself, and this engine has proven itself. This engine, I know how to work on. So that's why I prefer an older bike. And are you sponsored by Yamaha now? I was sponsored by Yamaha during the 2001-2006 trip. The bike uh, was given to me by Yamaha. That was virtually it. But um, uh, Yamaha all over the world was very helpful uh, to me. And uh, so, yeah, I got a lot of help from them. Um, At this stage, I'm not sponsored by Yamaha. I will definitely ask them in a further stage, but I'm still too far off it now. All expeditions have their challenges, but when you combine the extreme cold with the remoteness of the north, you have all the problems of, I don't know, a trip to the moon. And usually when you're planning an expedition into extreme climates, you use the equipment best suited to the task. But since the whole point is to ride a motorcycle to the North Pole, and in this case, an R1, because Jacques says... It's the bike of my heart. Then you have to find ways to work around things. So for getting things around in the North, traditionally, the sledge, spelt S-L-E-D-G-E, is basically a flat sled or a flat board almost with smooth runners on it that allow it to slide easily across the ice and in a straight line. The Inuit used to build them to be slightly flexible so they could go over the rough ice without shattering and breaking apart. Part. The sledge is not a contemporary design, though. In fact, it's been used by people as far back as 7,000 years or more, notably uh, in northern Europe for fishing and hunting villages. And it was a method to haul gear or that's heavy or awkward or that you don't want to carry. And it can often be loaded up with far more than you could carry on yourself, and you can slide it along the ice. Back then, they pulled sledges by hand and, if available, by dogs. But Jacques, he uses an R1. Well, I... Uh... I tried to pull a sledge in 2013 over the polar ice. And the, uh, I had in mind how the sledge should be, but it became on more heavy and heavy, heavy, and heavy. The fuel and everything in it, it was far too heavy. And what I already expected is that I wasn't able to pull it. So um, I had to ask uh, an, an Eskimo over there with a mosquito uh, to pull it. Uh, I was riding everything myself, but I was not pulling my gear. At that stage, I found out that uh, whatever I'm going to build, whatever sledge I'm going to build, I will not be able to do this on my own. I will not be able to pull pull enough fuel and my gear. So now I want to uh, only pull my gear. I want to do everything on my own. I want to do everything myself. They're not allowed to help me except taking my fuel and do filming and photography, because that was another one of the issues that uh, that I had, that it just didn't work. I'm, I was used to film and I was traveling around the world, but on the ice, it's a different story. If you have to get off your bike, set the camera and get back and the batteries empty. So uh, it's a bit of a different story. So those two things, um, um, I let other people do. 
how I don't know yet if that's going to be somebody with a dog sled or with a skido or with some type of uh, vehicle with uh, with tracks. I don't know yet to work that out. When do you plan on doing this? I plan on doing this uh, within the next four years. Uh, one year of building, one year of building and testing, and uh, and uh, done the first year, the first part, uh, until the most northern point, and then the last year to the to the north pole. We're going to take a short break, and then be right back with more from Jacques Lucas. And stay with us. Well, of course, you're riding in the summertime. You need a rain suit. I got to tell you from experience, do not buy a cheap rain suit. You're wasting your money. You may as well just ride in your gear and get soaked and and then dry out somewhere. Don't waste your time on it because cheap rain gear is going to let you down. I mean, if you had to in a jam, stick a plastic bag underneath your jacket or something like that, that's great. It's really clammy and you're probably going to end up soaked from your own sweat, but maybe it'll, it'll do for a short run. But Pull some decent bucks together and get a quality rain suit. Go to www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. Make sure you put in the forward slash ARR for two reasons. One, it's going to let them know that it came from Adventure Rider Radio. But two, it's going to get you 10% off your first purchase or free shipping on your next order. And it should do really well when you're getting a rain suit because Aerostitch makes quality rain suits. Now, if you're not familiar with Aerostitch gear, it's just top quality. It is the adventure rider's gear. Uh, it's sort of the de facto for adventure riding and has been long before adventure riding even became popular as it is today where all kinds of companies are popping up all over the place. So drop by Aerostitch. And if you haven't already, by the way, get the catalog. You need the catalog. I mean, I just think it's, a, it's an essential for all of us riders. So when you go by their website and you've already got their catalog, look at their page for clothing hover over clothing and then go down to the rain gear click on rain gear and look at the aerostitch ultralight rain pants this is a nice set of pants it's got zippers on it kind of reminds me of the ad1 pants that i have right now but what really sells me on something like this well i already know aerostitch quality i already know it's going to be good which is one thing i sort of like you know not sort of like i love because when i order something i don't want to wait till i get it to see if it's going to be any good i'd rather order from aerostitch and then just know it's going to be good and i'm speaking from experience because i already have aerostitch gear i'm riding with uh, the darian jacket and the 81 pants and i also have a set of tank bags that i've ran forever on my bike and beat the daylights out of them they, they've been absolutely amazing but so the um the back to the pants i was telling you about the ultralight rain pants look at the reviews they have on them i don't want to spoil it for you just check the reviews on these rain pants. Take it from me, you will not go wrong with Aerostitch quality. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, if you've been listening to the show for some time, you've probably heard our rider skills segment with Brett Tax. And Brett, of course, is from PSSOR, or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. Now, if you haven't been to their website, if you've never dropped by their website, go there now, www.pssor.com. Look at their website. They do off-road training. And if you've heard Brett on this show, you know he knows what he's talking about. They do world-class training. He trains the military. He does all types of things that you wouldn't even think are done. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even realize the military 
did training, but they do it and then they hire the best. They're calling Brett for it to come and train the troops how to ride the motorcycles. So if you look at what they've got here on their homepage, they've got adventure training camps. They've got adventure training expeditions or slash tours, and they've got off-road training. So if you're looking at dirt bikes and then learn to ride courses. So if you've, you've got kids or teens or adults who want to learn to ride, they've got courses for them. Let's face it, training is going to put you leaps and bounds ahead to where you would be otherwise. To go out and bumble around and learn yourself is is just probably an exercise in frustration, especially when it comes to motorcycling, but definitely when it comes to be riding, uh, when it comes to riding large adventure bikes. Go get some training and you'll find that in a couple of days, you're going to be riding far better than you ever imagined. It's incredible what you can do with a large adventure bike when you're trained by professionals like at PSSOR. Drop by their website, www.pssor.com, and tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Jacques lives and breathes motorcycle adventure. His life is completely designed around it. In fact, it's his livelihood as well as his passion. Yes, this is what I do for a living, and I give presentations about my travels. Uh, I have a book, which is called uh, Life on Two Wheels, and I have a DVD, Shark the World, a documentary DVD. I sell those and some other merchandise, and that's virtually what I do. Uh, For this next trip, I have also on my website uh, a support flag. People can uh, sign up for that and write symbolically with me. They can donate uh, 10 euros, 20 euros, 100 euros, and then they get a, a piece on the flag, and the flag goes with me during my next, uh, next adventure. Let's just talk about your presentations for a minute, because for someone who doesn't know, they may not realize you've got a bunch of different presentations you do. Can you tell us about those? I, uh, I do presentations of virtually all my travels. Uh, there's one about the fire by trip to the other end of the world and back. Uh, that's a presentation that I don't do that often. And the reason is that uh, at that stage I didn't have film and it's only about with slides and of course a very humorous uh, story. And, uh, but from the R1 World Travel, I have a presentation which is very active with a lot of little videos in there from some only from five, sec- 10 seconds with some from two minutes. And uh, you will not uh, believe what you see in there and so people like, uh, especially like that presentation. Then I do a presentation about uh, my winter rides, uh, all my winter rides, and then I do a presentation only about the last uh, winter ride on the, on the polar ice. How many miles or kilometers have you covered in total doing adventure riding? I'm not sure how many miles I did in, uh, in, in, in the actual adventure riding or in total. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know that. Uh, I know that my last two bikes, or let's say my, my, my two world travel bikes, the Fireblade and the R1, uh, did in total together over 600,000 kilometers. 600,000. That's a lot of, that's a lot of kilometers, there's no doubt. When you're doing any one of your trips, what, what's your goals while you're traveling? On my world travels, the goals was completely different uh, than now. Now the North Pole is there and eventually I want to reach that. On my world travels, I, I mainly wanted to be on the road with the bike. And I don't intend to see everything in a country, but absolutely uh, more the opposite. Because then you have a reason to come back. Mm. 
And uh, but I'm gonna see a few things in each country, and the rest of the things that uh, is what happens by coincidence that would make traveling so nice. But I travel with time as my friend. I take my time, and uh, which I find very important. But as long as I'm on the road, in, in my documentary, I say, uh, home is where my bike is. So when you travel along, you, you sort of just fall into whatever happens. You're not worried about mileage. You're not worried about distance. You just sort of mosey along and, and see what you bump into. Yes, correct. I, I have days that I do lots of miles. I have days that I did only 40 miles. I don't care. I don't have to. What kind of things do you bump into? Oh, into people, into nice nature, and um, breakdowns. And breakdowns is, is always very nice. Uh, sounds strange, but uh, it brings you uh, closer to uh, people and uh, the help from from people uh, is ama- it's amazing. So. It's so counterintuitive to hear you say that. I was about to say, what? What did you just say that right? What do you mean breakdowns are, are fantastic? So you mean to say, you can honestly say when your bike has a breakdown, you sort of go, yes. And uh, No, but I'm also not that I'm, I'm worried about it. Because uh, it, it, no, I'm not saying yes. Wow, great! No, mm-hmm. but uh, after it happened, and you get all the help, and you get invited there, and people help you. That's just amazing, and that that does you very good. At least me. Jacques' book, Life on Two Wheels, is 36 stories about Jacques' travels through 75 countries over more than five years. I had to cramp uh, five years and five months in there. So I try to describe from uh, all the aspects that uh, that happened. I try to, to describe at least one in them, but also uh, nice stories, uh, but also some very serious things like uh, getting ill or being with uh, somebody on the beach and getting uh, robbed. And that robbery turned into an attempt to rape her, which I had to prevent. Luckily, that was a a good outcome. So it didn't happen. But that story is in there, too. Uh, The story is in there from uh, um, being on on a boat where they had actually promised me there would be no cocaine on. And there was still uh, 200 kilos of cocaine. Uh, there had been still 200 kilos of cocaine on without my knowledge. But that uh, that uh, delayed me in my travels a little bit. But uh, also, but it's actually a very nice story. But I had, of course, nothing to do with it, and that makes it nice. Do, do you find, is there ever a point where travel sort of wears on you, um, where you get to the point where you, you want to head home? Yeah, that's a question that uh, a lot of people ask me. Have you never the point that you want to give up? Uh, and I had, I never had that. Absolutely never. I know why I'm doing this, and I know that uh, that's also with when you when you take your time, and you never you don't have that problem. It doesn't come up in you because you know there's always the go. You can always go on. Uh, if there's, if it's really hard, if there's really a problem, take it easy, and uh, the the solution will come, and uh, you can go on again. 
What about when money gets tight and you, you know, you, you don't really have a place to stay, all those sorts of things. How do you handle that? You don't need a place to stay. You've got my tent with me and I have always a place to stay. And I can sleep on the side of the road. I did that uh, a lot in the States and the short uh, time that I was in Canada as well. And uh, but later I found out I could better go to campsites because uh, I had postcards printed off my travels and I sold them on the road. And if I went to a campsite, then uh, mainly I, I paid 10 or $15 for the campsite. Mainly two people bought a set of postcards, which was $16. Some people gave me uh, to eat, and uh, and, I, and somebody else gave me a bottle of two bottles of beer. So uh, why camp it on the side of the road? Jacques is considered a very accomplished world traveler, one of the top world moto travelers. He's ridden more miles in more extreme conditions than most of us could imagine. Endless hours in the saddle, over 75 countries visited. He's dealt with all the obstacles of travel, like border crossings, luggage, shipping his bike, breakdowns, sickness on the road. He knows what to take on his bike and how to pack it. But when I asked him what his top tips were for the would-be traveler? Well, the, the, most of the most important thing is follow your heart and take time. Take your time. That is the most important thing. So if, if, if you have time, if you can take time, you enjoy it so much better. And follow your heart uh, with every decision you do. And if that is in traveling or whatever in life. Um, stay happy and that is in my case only when I follow my heart that's interesting because I'm sure a lot of people expected to hear you talk about gear motorcycle preparation the whole bit and you didn't say anything about that no no it's it's absolutely not important I, I know people who travel with lots of gear I know people who travel so light they have nothing and uh, they can all be happy. It doesn't matter what you do, as long as you do it your way. Well, let me ask you then, if there's one piece of gear that you could not do without, that you feel is important for every trip, what is that? Um, Duct tape. Duct tape? Yeah. I always say a a motorcycle adventure without duct tape is like a blind man without a stick. So give me an idea. What's the extreme things you've done with duct tape? Uh, um, the most extreme thing with duct tape, um, holding uh, a chewing gum on its place, uh, which I used to repair a hole in the radiator. <laughs> okay, that's that's pretty extreme, and that actually worked. It more or less worked, yeah. You just want to slow the bleeding. Duct tape, but the, 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 it becomes so hot a radiator that it... Uh... Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited recently told me that Jacques' presentations are really, really good. So if you happen to be in the UK this August... Yeah, I will be in Oxford in uh, the end of August in, uh, in England on the Overland Show. That is the 26th to the 29th of August is the Overland event in uh, Oxford in England. I will be there with uh, three bikes. I will have my Firebait there. I will have my R1 World Travel bike there. And my Polar Ice Ride bike. will be all three at that show. And I will do, uh, on during two of the days, I will do a short presentation from about one hour over there. So people can all 
go over there and uh, watch me. And for all our people's, uh, people in the rest of the world, uh, you can always go to my website and uh, they can ask me for a presentation and if it's possible, I come over. I've been speaking with Jacques Lukensen, and you can find out more about Jacques and his adventures by going by his website, www.r1goesextreme.com. And that link, of course, will be in our show notes, as they always are, at www.adventureriderradio.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com, greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And of course, we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now there's no excuses. Time to get out there and ride your bike. This is summertime for the Northern Hemisphere. You've got to do it. You've got to get out there and enjoy it while we've got it. Because, you know, we're about midpoint in the summer now. and There's not a lot of time left. So get out there, ride, and enjoy it. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you, the listener. And hey, if you like what you hear and you want to keep it coming to you free, the model for the show is built on some advertising and some support for listeners. So please consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button. Anything $10 and over is going to get you a gift sent back at you in the mail, our way of saying thanks. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. I'm Natasha Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.